This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player. This is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all-time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another Mike Missanelli Podcast, episode number 35, the special Christmas edition. And we're doing it on Thursday, December 22nd. Of course, brought to you by the great people at Bet Rivers. Don't forget to download that Bet Rivers app and make all your NFL bets or any bet you want to make on any sport. Plus, you can play casino games, which is a great advantage Bet Rivers has over other websites. So check it out. Bet Rivers. Download it. Get it right on your phone. All right. So coming up today, we're obviously going to analyze the Eagles and Cowboys. But Marcus Hayes, columnist for the Incard Daily News, will join us. We'll have some Christmas discussions. We'll go over our favorite songs, favorite movies, and we're going to have a special analysis today of, of The Godfather, which, you know, technically is not a Christmas movie, but it has a Christmas element to it. And that's why we're bringing it into the fold. And by special request today. It's something I used to do on the radio a long time ago. Every Christmas season, I used to uh, talk along with Bruce in the opening of his world-famous Santa Claus is Coming to Town record. Uh, I imitate Bruce and talk right along with him and his intro into the song. So you don't want to miss that. That's coming up in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the Eagles-Cowboys. Now, this game has been watered down slightly because we don't know about the status of the quarterback. Uh, Jalen Hurts probably will not play. By the Eagles, I wouldn't play him. Uh, you know, that shoulder situation, there's no reason to play him in this game. They need one win uh, to clinch the number one seed and the division. So I would uh, expect that he would not play in this game, and it'll be Gardner Minshew's game. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because if they have to sit him out two weeks, which I think they might have to, and everybody's saying, well, you can beat the Saints at home. Yeah, you can beat the Saints at home, but I don't know if he'd be ready for that game, which means – the final game of the year, you still need a win. Would you play him against the New York Giants? Uh, that's a big dilemma. We'll, we'll have to follow this as it goes along. But let's uh, look at the at Eagles and Cowboys. And this, of course, is Christmas Eve, 425 on Saturday. Uh, just a reminder for the people that follow the Eagles postgame show that we do with uh, Seth Joyner, Derek Gunn, Devin Caney. We are doing the postgame show on Christmas Eve. We're going to do it from the comforts of our own living room. 
So it should be nice. But we will be there. We will not let you down on Christmas Eve. We'll do a post-game show on that Christmas Eve game. Dallas right now is a five-point favorite. That line went from Dallas being favored by a point which got my attention when Hertz was, was going to play in this game to now minus five with Hertz not playing in the game. Uh, first of all, the news before we get to the analysis of this game, the Eagles have eight players in the pro Bowl. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Six of them on offense, Hertz, Sanders, Kelsey, Lane Johnson, uh, Dickerson and AJ Brown. Now, I don't know, the only one I could come up with was Dickerson. I don't know. Maybe that's, He's even had a Pro Bowl season. Eh, maybe, maybe not. He's been in and out of the lineup. But uh, six on offense, two on defense, Darius Slay and Son Reddick, who's having a monster year sacking the quarterback. Okay, so let's get back to the analysis of the game. Can Minshew beat the Cowboys? Now, he's had – he played against them last year, believe it or not. It was a forgetful game. It was the last game of the season, uh, and Dallas smoked them 51-26. to He was very average in that game, 19-33, 186, two touchdowns. Uh, but it was a throwaway game. So I I, I don't know. He's played well in certain games. Can he go into Dallas and beat the Cowboys? Yeah. I believe the Eagles are a better team than the Cowboys. So uh, the quarterback without the the, the run-pass option element is going to have to beat him, which means they're going to have to protect. But they certainly have enough receivers in this game because Dallas Goddard is back for them. So that gives him a more well-rounded attack. So, yeah, I, there's no question in my mind that, that uh, Minshew could go into Dallas and win that game because the Cowboys are just so erratic. Uh, last week, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, tremendous last week. They combined for more than 300 yards receiving. Let's look at some numbers. The Eagles are the number three ranked offense in the NFL. The Eagles' defense is ranked number two in the NFL. That's a pretty good combination. The Cowboys, conversely, eight on offense, no slouch, nine on defense. They haven't really sacked the quarterback lately, though. You know, they've had one sack in the last two games the Cowboys have had, and Michael Parsons has kind of been quelled. He got that last sack, but they've quelled him a little bit uh, over the last uh, few weeks. The Cowboys, let's look at the, what the Eagles might do to them. The Cowboys' rush defense is not great. Uh, they give up 5.2 yards per carry, and last week they got torched by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Travis Etienne ripped them apart for 192 uh, and uh, in that game, they go up 7.1 yards per carry. So I would assume the Eagles look at that as a weakness and the Eagles would be run-centric. But who knows? Because last week they should have been run-centric and they were pass-centric. Um, let's let's look at the, uh, the Eagles' rush defense because they're going to face a formidable duo. Zeke, not the same, but with Pollard, they're pretty good as a duo. Eagles' rush defense has not been that great this year. 5.2 last week against the, Bra- uh, against the Bears, but... Of course, that's with uh, Travis, uh, I mean, uh, Justin Fields going crazy. Uh, overall, they give up 4.4 yards per carry to running backs. And also, not great. So I would expect that that Dallas would try to, to hit him, run early, and then rely on some um, play action from Prescott. And let's talk about Dak Prescott. He's on, he's off. He has a triple-digit rating game. He goes back into the 70s to 90s, and it's happened every game. If you look at it, every triple-digit ratings game is followed by a game that's less than triple digits. So you never know if you're getting the good or, or the bad uh, Dak Prescott. Plus, he's, he's pick-happy these days. He's thrown 10 interceptions in his last six games. All right, the, the play last week where they lose in overtime was a pick six. It was tipped. I get it. But he's been fairly careless with the ball. So – you know, it's not as if the Eagles are going into this game thinking, well, they got to face an all-world quarterback. He has been very erratic. On the other hand, he's got some good targets. But he only throws the four of them. He throws the CeeDee Lamb. All of a sudden, he's throwing in Noah Brown. His tight end is a stud, Dalton Schultz. And he throws the Pollard out of the backfield. 
So they're, they're the weapons that he uses to pass the football. I expect it's going to be a run-centric attack on both sides in this game. It'd be a taffy pull game between uh, the Eagles and the Cowboys this week. Now, let's let's look at the, what Dak and his wide receivers can do against the Eagles because nobody's been able to do something against the Eagles as far as wide receivers. The Eagles are holding wide receivers to a 75.6 rating. That might be tops in the league. I haven't checked, but it's in the, the top few in the league. That's pretty significant. 75.6 rating against wide receivers. The Eagles defense, first in sacks with 55. Tied for second in quarterback hits with 98. And in the last three games, they have had six-plus sacks. So the, the, the Heat's got to come on to Dak Prescott, and he's got to get rid of the ball quickly. If he gets rid of the ball quickly, I've seen some situations where he gets rid of the ball too quickly to avoid a sack, and that's a pick. And that's where I think he's been getting into problems. Uh, all right. so. Um, Michael Parsons, you stop him. I assume the Eagles will have a, a defensive plan to do this. And, and I actually think I don't know how to call this game. I really don't. I got I'm on I go on both sides of the fence here. A, I think Minshew could beat the Cowboys. B, the Cowboys are in a situation where they're in a must-win situation. They lost disappointingly last week. They have to snap back in their home, in front of their home crowd. I would not be shocked if this is an Eagle loss, although I think Minshew can win the game for the Eagles. Now, that's very noncommittal. It's probably like a little uh, weaselish and, and and not assertive. So I'll, I'll throw it to my producer, Darren. Darren, do you have a, a defined opinion on who wins this game? I've been bullish on this game for weeks, and I was bullish on the game on Monday uh, or Tuesday, rather, or the last podcast. I still think the Eagles are going to win. I'll tell you a couple of things that do make me nervous. Now, Dallas' defense is beat up a little bit, but they do have a good defensive coordinator, Dan Quinn. They just got 40 hung on them. Well, 34 if you count the defensive touchdown. But a 40-burger hung on them last week. They The defense the previous week played terrible against Houston, almost lost that game. So I, that makes me a little nervous. I do think Dallas' defense will play well on Saturday. And the Eagles' run defense is the one thing that scares me this week because Dallas can run the ball a little bit. They, wide receivers do not scare me. Dak Prescott does not scare me this week at all. The defensive backfield will be fine. Um, you got Goddard coming back. You got a full array of weapons for Gardner Minshew. Gardner Minshew is fully capable of winning any game as a backup in this league, any game. He's got that much talent around him. He's a solid top five backup quarterback in the NFL. He's probably better than a lot of starters in this league right now, Mike. The quarterback position across the league is that, I mean, I've never seen so many just terrible, terrible quarterbacks starting in the NFL. So I do think Minshew will have plenty of weapons. Um, I'm not concerned so much. I also think you got the elevated play factor by the rest of the team around him with the backup quarterback in. I've been bullish on this game. I'm going to continue to be bullish. The Eagles are going to win on Saturday. Get the eggnog out. It's America. Oh, all right. So you're picking Eagles, and I'm a little yeah. ambivalent. But listen, I, they have to lose somewhere along the line. I looked at this game early in the season. Even they were playing lights out without their quarterback. So it's, it's not a hard leap to think that they could lose this game, and it wouldn't hurt them at all. Uh, but the, the, the Jalen Hurts situation is a, a little precarious right now until we find out what the deal is. I assume they may have to sit him out for two weeks and then uh, maybe have him play against the Giants, which is not the ideal scenario. So we'll have to follow that. All right, let's uh, – I'll be honest with you on that, Mike. I, I will not surprise me at all. If he plays? Even a little bit. If he plays on Saturday. It really won't. I won't be – I mean, I do think Minshew's mm-hmm. going to play. 
And if I have to bet, I'm definitely betting Minshew 100%. But it's not going to surprise me in a little bit if Hurts plays. It's just – he just strikes me as a guy that would be able to play and play through pain. Minshew missed a day because he had to go down and uh, give a testimonial to Mike Leach. And there's yeah. a, like, a little controversy that he threw an F-bomb in there with Mike Leach. I, I, I don't know what – uh, I didn't see it, so I, I don't know how to react to that. Uh, I know I was on record when Utley did it. Uh, I thought that was inappropriate. So I, I don't know if it was appropriate what context measure. But the point is, you missed a, a day when you you know, you know have to get all the reps you can with this team. Uh, it's not the ideal situation, but maybe it, it won't hurt him at all. All right, let's, let's move on. Well, maybe it helps him. I mean, look, football's an emotional game, Mike. You bring some uh-huh. extra emotion, added emotion into the game. Your college- yeah, but you're missing a day of preparation. It's a walkthrough. You lost the walk. Missing a day of preparation and practice when you need when you need all the preparation you can. That's my only concern. Uh, all right, uh, let's go into our NFL picks for, for the week. Uh, last week uh, I had my first losing week. I can't believe it. All year long I was one and two. It's the first time I've gone under five hundred. Uh, so I had uh, a loss with the Seahawks. I took. A- I foolishly took them over the 49ers. And I had a loss with the Panthers. I foolishly took them over the Steelers. They're playing well. They're in a hunt to win the damn division. They're playing the Steelers, and they lose at home. I I don't get this league at all. But I did take the Browns uh, in that game over the Ravens, uh, and they cover. So I'm 28-24 and 24 on the year after being 1-2 and two last week. This week, uh, I'm looking at lines that are getting my attention. I'm the hottest team in the league, Cincinnati Bengals. Now they're at, they're at the Patriots, and and the Bengals are only a three point favorite against the lousy freaking Patriots. They stink, and, and, and they lose last week in embarrassing fashion. And yet the odds maker only makes them a three point dog. That gets my attention a little bit. I hate to do it because they burned me before, but I'm going to take the Patriots in the game and maybe outright. I don't understand that line. All right, let's move on. I hate the Titans too. They blow. So I'm gonna, I am was going to pick them over to Texans. The Titans are only a three-point favorite at home against that team. So I'm, ta- I'm out. I'm out on the Titans. I'm not going to take that game. And believe it or not, this is going to make me go back to the Panthers, and I'll explain in a second. Second game, I'll take the Rams with ba- Baker Mayfield all of a sudden resurgent against the lousy Broncos, and the Rams are getting two, point, two and a half points at home. I think the Rams win the game. Uh, so I'll take that one. And here's another fishy line. The Lions, along with the, the Bengals, are a hot team, right? The Lions, are they see playoffs in their future. They they play the, the, the Carolina Panthers in Carolina. Carolina trying to bounce back. Carolina is only a two-and-a-half-point dog in the game. I smell it out right there, too. I think the Lions go down. Panthers have burned me before. I'm an idiot for going back with them. But since the Titans blow so much, I'm going to take the Carolina Panthers in that game. So my picks are the Patriots plus three, the Rams plus two and a half, Carolina plus two and a half, all home dogs. And two of the three, I think, could pull an, uh, an outright. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All righty, it is a continuation of the Mike Missanelli podcast and privileged to have our next guest uh, on the line. He's done just about everything in, in newspapers and uh, sports journalism, a beat writer in baseball, beat writer in football, now a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News. And occasionally you'll hear him on the WIP Morning Show with Angelo. Marcus Hayes joins us. What's up, Marcus? Mikey Miss, how are we feeling? 
Uh, we're doing really good and a lot to talk to you about here as uh, all of a sudden Philadelphia sports heaven. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. But first, let's talk about uh, I'm glad to have you on here because you're you're kind of a guy after my own heart. Your columns are, are always provocative. And I think we both had the same goal. And I did radio. You do columns where. We want to move people. We, we want to uh, get, make make a topic worthy of discussion for people, and, and you do that. So I'm just curious to know what your your blueprint was when you became a columnist, and what kind of tenets you follow to be a columnist. Well, I was lucky to have a couple of real giants precede me at the Daily News, where I, I worked exclusively before the Enquirer and the Daily News merged, and Stan Hockman and Bill Conlon. And you know, Bill was uh, drummed out of the uh, the race into disgrace, but Stan went out with his head held high. And both of them let me understand that I had two jobs if I ever became a columnist. Number one was to be the advocate of the fan, not necessarily a, a cheerleader, but understand what was best for the fan because that was your audience and your job was to sort of represent them. Number two, um, be clear and be fair and think. So that doesn't, that means sometimes going against what the fans want and certainly against what the teams want. But if you do that over time, you'll, you'll build a good foundation and, and get credibility, gain credibility. And it also helps you think of good ideas, you know, like for example, we're in a moment right now where people are having flashbacks to 2017 when Carson Wentz got hurt late in the season. And this guy, Nick Foles, the backup quarterback, he was going to have to kind of guide the team wherever it was going to go. And I, I remember listening to a couple of radio stations. There were grown men crying on the way in to uh, to Eagles practice that day or the, the day after or whatever. And I was thinking, well, this is a great this is crazy. Nick Foles might not even be or, uh, Carson Wentz might not even be the best player on the team, even though he was an MVP candidate. Fletcher Cox was in his heyday. Lane Johnson was outstanding. Jason Kelsey was a stud. It was a really, really good team around Carson Wentz, who was also playing well. So thanks to those guys, you know, that column came to my mind, like, you know, all is not lost. Nick Foles isn't horrible, and he's had a pretty good track record. And that may be the same, you know, sort of deal with Gardner Minshew, at least for the next couple of weeks with Jalen Hurts injured. And the other person I really looked up to and learned from was, was Rich Hoffman who was probably the cleanest columnist in the nation when he was a columnist with the Daily News. There are stories about people not having to touch his copy for months at a time. He was clear. He was concise. He was uh, very, very clean. And we, I called him the dead skunk because he was kind of always in the middle of the road. He was like, on one hand this, on the other hand that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but – um. Which is, which is, but it makes you be a critical thinker. It makes you argue against yourself. So those three guys were the columnists when I came on at the Daily News, and they helped me sort of understand what a job. Okay, I grew up on a 146 acre farm. We still can't get a daily newspaper delivered to the place I grew up. 
So big city journalism is is very, very uh, foreign and new to me was when I got here when I was 27. Yeah, I had the same influences, uh, especially Stan. Uh, and Stan was a guy who would take no prisoners. He would you know, be as honest as he could for, for the fan. And, and I think you've, you've kind of adapted that. And, so, and, and you're not going to get everybody to agree with you. Just like, well, I didn't have everybody agree with me. But I, as long as I was being honest with myself, I was okay with that. I assume that's the way you feel. Well, yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, like, you're not always right. Even though you try to consider everything, um, you're not always right. I mean, um, we're on the edge of Howie Roseman probably winning executive of the year for the second time in five years, right? Uh, in 2016, after the 2016 season, you know, the back page of the Daily News was a column I wrote said, fire Howie. You know, a year later... I was voting for him as executive of the year and he won the Super Bowl. And five years later, he might win it twice. So you're not always going to be right. But when I wrote that column, I had good reason to think that he should be removed. What happened in 2017 is um, he, he, he had hired a couple of lieutenants who helped him build a better team. In um, Oh, the guy at the Jets now, Joe Douglas and um, uh, Weidel, uh, Andy Weidel. So my firing at the time might have been justified, but he had the foresight and wherewithal to hire guys who helped him build a really, really good team and become a better general manager. Yeah, the difference. I see. I was always right, so I don't know that side where I was, I was wrong. <laughs> but no, I get, to, I get what, what you're saying. So let's just talk about a couple of things that you've written recently. And uh, the most recent one, uh, you, you it hurts gets hurt, and uh, uh, your column the next day is uh, the coaching staff put him out there too much, and and they they have him running the ball too much, and, and that elicited a lot of reaction because a lot of people say, well. The Eagles are what they are because he can run like that. So uh, when you're writing, you're sitting in the right that column, what's going through your mind? Well, one of the things I hate to do is sort of uh, switch, you know, sort of switch the boat midstream. So I've been a, a proponent forever since, you know, Donovan McNabb was here that when you design runs for quarterbacks, you every time he takes a hit outside of the pocket, you're, you're diminishing the length of his career. That was true with Donovan. It was true with Michael Vick. It's true with Randall. It was true with Steve McNair. Um, it's true with Cam Newton. Uh, so I've been consistent with that. So I thought it was interesting that he got hurt on the perfect type of play where I could say, I told you so. But it was important that I had told you so, you know, because one of the greatest frustrations for coaches and players is when you're sort of like, yeah, you're doing a great job. And then when something goes wrong, you're like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. So I had had the foundation of sort of saying, listen, I think he was averaging going into uh, game 14, I think he was averaging like 15 runs a game or something like that, which is a lot. That's like Shady's numbers in the, you know, in the, in the middle 2000s. You know, LaShawn McCoy was running the ball that much every year. He was going to he was going to wind up with almost 200 carries. Um, Jalen Hurts was. So it's just too much punishment at a position where most of the punishment you take is blindside punishment. It's punishment you don't ex expect. And so the reason I wrote that column is because I'd been campaigning for him to run less all along, even if it meant, you know, not picking up a third down in the middle of a game where, you know, a dump to, to a running back would have been better. And that's the other criticism I have of Jalen, who's, you know, for my money at this point, 
the, the most valuable player in the league. He still doesn't trust the tight ends and the check downs. He doesn't read the blitz as well, and he shouldn't. You know, he's only played, what, 50 games, 60 games, whatever. That said, you know, he needs to do that better. And there are times when he just chooses, he's rolling out and a, a running back is mirroring him eight yards down the field. He chooses to keep it. That needs to change. So when I wrote that column, I felt justified that I had, you know, enough backstory and, and foundation to be outraged. And I, I kind of was outraged. I'm not always outraged. I'd say it's like 50% of the time I'm like, you know, on a, on a, uh, in a pulpit on a, a, what do you call it, a soapbox. But this time I was pretty outraged because he was injured. And the thing that killed me was Nick Sirianni was like, well, you know, we called that play earlier in the game and we got the guy blocked on the outside so Jalen could take the corner. So what he was saying is we knew that this was a possibility. And if the defender did his job, Jalen was going to get clocked by a defensive lineman. So why, why would you do that? Why would you do that twice? You know, the, the, the defenders aren't idiots. They're going to see the formation. They're going to see the play. And this time the defender won. He wasn't the guy that hit him. The safety wasn't the guy who hit him. The defensive 263-pound defensive lineman was, which is exactly how the defense is drawn up to, 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 uh, to defend that play. So Nick Sirianni was admitting that on that RPO, he knew that Jalen Hurts could have this outcome. And to me, that's just not – that's unconscionable for a guy – at this point, who at this point in his career is a franchise quarterback. Uh, let me stretch this out now to the end because, you know, people talk about this all the time uh, because there's no frame of reference for it. Can a quarterback like Jalen Hurts win a Super Bowl the way he plays? Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, when, when, he, his, when he's his best, he's Steve Young. You know, Steve Young was not a great uh, – he didn't have great arm strength. He wasn't a huge guy. He didn't stay in the pocket, certainly. He was one of the best mobile quarterbacks we've ever seen. But he's really, really smart. He understood what was in front of him. And, you know, he wound up getting out of the game not early in, in years, but, you know, because he had a four-year period where he didn't play. But concussions knocked him out of the game. So, yeah, a guy like that can can win a Super Bowl, can win multiple Super Bowls. He just won't be winning Super Bowls when he's 35. Do you see them winning this Super Bowl? Depending on the degree of his injury, you know, we don't really know how badly his shoulder is sprained. And we're talking about a guy who didn't have a big arm to begin with and didn't have great mechanics, you know, especially under duress to begin with. So, yes, if Jalen Hurts is 100%, there's nobody in the NFL they can't beat. That said, Patrick Mahomes can beat anybody on any given day. You know, Josh Allen might be able to beat anybody on any given day. And both of those teams are very, very strong. I, if the Eagles make it to the Super Bowl, they'll be underdogs against the Chiefs or the Bills. But that doesn't mean they can't win because I honestly think that the probably the, the least appreciated portion of their team is, is the defensive secondary, and they can shut down everybody. And if most of the sacks they've gotten this year are second effort sacks because the secondary did their job. That's why the defensive line is eating the way it is. So, yeah, they can beat anybody in the league, but I don't think they'd be favored against the two best teams in the AFC. Okay. Uh, all right, let's just uh, go backwards on, on your career, Gabby, because you, you've taken on uh, the two most difficult jobs in, in newspaper journalism, which is beat writer and columnist, and they're very different. Um, uh, it, it, try to describe the difference in, in these two jobs. You know, the, the beat writer is a grind daily, dealing with people, dealing with uh, uh, on a daily basis they, where they might not like what you wrote. And, and the column is like you're under the gun constantly to come up with a really original idea that's going to get people to read. Uh, how have you made that transition? 
Well, I was fortunate in that I didn't become a columnist too early. You know, I've covered minor league soccer, minor league uh, hockey. I've covered minor league baseball. I covered high schools for five years. I covered small college sports, non-revenue college sports, the Olympics, all this sort of stuff gave me a great foundation, but nothing as much as covering a bad baseball team in a huge city with a, a rabbit sports base. Covering the Phillies for eight years as the beat writer, you know, I, People ask me all the time, you know, what's the best way to become a columnist, a good columnist, to cover baseball for five or ten years? Because it's the hardest job in sports because of what you said. Not only is it a grind, it's a grind in every type of weather. It's eight, nine months a year plus the offseason, which has become, you know, immersive at this point. It's a game that, you know, Larry Boa was the Phillies manager when I took over the beat in er, in 2002. And... To this day, when Larry Boa goes to the ballpark, he learns something new. So it's a game you never know. It's a game that you can learn a lot about and be competent, but it's a game you've never finished learning. So, and honestly, Boa was probably the best, my best teacher ever. He's, he's a great teacher of baseball. Um, so the, the biggest difference is when you are covering a beat, not only are you sort of staying on top of the news of the day, and helping the fan follow what's important. And it might not seem important at the time, like a bullpen shuffle might not seem important in May, but if you're a good beat writer, you understand that it's going to be important in August when you're coming down the stretch. And if this, you know, like I remember when um, uh, Ryan Madsen moved from starter to setup man, there wasn't a whole lot of seismic, you know, uh, reaction to that, but, the pitching coach and the manager at the time told me like, look, we really believe that he could do this for a long time. Ryan Madsen wanted to make like $50 million as a, as a, you know, lockdown setup guy. So you have to understand sort of what's important. And then with baseball, especially it's a chapter in a book every day. So you're telling a different story every day. And that's really the only way to keep yourself sane and keep it fresh. Now, that prepares you to be a columnist because you understand very quickly, especially covering baseball for a mediocre team, uh, covering baseball and covering a mediocre team. You have to write about people. The thing that people want to read about is people. They want to read about experiences. Um, there's a really good, a really good story right now on Inquire.com about Andrew Bellini, a Phillies uh, reliever, um, who killed a guy in a car accident and and, and, widowed this woman. And it's a spectacular story. It's a wonderful story. And it's, you know, people are reading it all over the country. But you're, you're learning about the people involved more than you're learning about, you know, how he figured out how to throw a better splitter, you know. There's a, there's a place for that, but there, the, the, there's another place for the other stuff. So the best columns and the best stories are about people. And covering beats, you learn that very quickly. Like there's a really good, a really good story in the uh, Wilmington paper uh, yesterday about Jordan Mailata's vocal coach and, you know, his range and things like that. So you're learning about Jordan Mailata, the Eagles left tackle who's a spectacular singer and I'm sure you guys have talked about the Eagles lineman's Christmas album but getting the backstory and understanding just how good he is and why he's good is excellent really excellent reporting reporting by a guy named Martin Frank so you learn 
as a beat writer that you're writing about people and people love to read about people. But the column also um, is is really the, the pressure to you, like you have to do X number of columns a week. Sometimes the ideas aren't aren't plentiful and you find yourself maybe in a panic. Say, oh, I got to come up with this. What do I do here? I, I mean, that's that's tough. It really is. And, and again, like that 50 percent of like soapbox stuff, it's easy when that's there. Right. When when Doc Rivers is belittling people for not knowing basketball by suggesting that Ben Simmons maybe shouldn't start or shouldn't play or shouldn't be in the fourth quarter, that's an easy column to write. It's a much more difficult column to write when you're talking about, you know, I don't really care if Miles Sanders gets a contract extension. That's, you know, I think it would be wise if it's, but that's a hard column to write. And that's a column I worked on for like two and a half, three weeks mainly because I just didn't have the the passion to sort of jump on it. You know what I mean? So a lot of times you, you, you have sort of these contrived opinions, not contrived opinions, but contrived conviction. You know, you sort of have to ramp it up a little bit, but you know, it's, it's true of, you know, talk radio. It's true. It's true of every profession. You're not going to, you know, show up at work every day and sort of be, you know, rolling down like at the peak of the roller coaster saying, Oh, let's go. And we're picking up speed. But yeah, it's uh and honestly doing it in Philadelphia, you get called on it real quick. People, people. Will- yeah. Well, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk about you getting called on stuff right. uh, because you, you know, you're, you're, you're a guy who, who stands up uh, for your opinion, stands up for yourself uh, in a profession where a lot of athletes will like to belittle you and hammer you. And how do you, and you've had a couple confrontations. So, so how do you handle that? And, and tell me about the, the, the most interesting confrontation you had, whether it was reasonable or not. Well, I'll tell you about the two most uh, marked ones. Um, and then how I learned from the first one to handle the second one. So it was like late nineties, I guess. And Brian Mitchell was a, a kick returner here in Philadelphia. And I had been on a radio show or a TV show and he was up for like the pro bowl. He'd be done a great job. And my comment was, even though he's lost half a step, he's still among the elite kick returns. Well, all he he'd heard was he'd lost half a step. So I was standing near the trainer's room at the Eagles locker room because somebody was in like Rodney Peters. Somebody was in there getting treatment and Brian Mitchell's locker happened to be next to the trainer's room door. And he says, get the bleep away from my locker. And I look at him. I was like, what? Get the bleep away from my locker. And I, at this point, it was like three days after I'd said it, right? Yeah. By the way, you can curse on this podcast if you want. So I, Get the fuck away from my locker. <laughs> so I said, uh, uh, why? He says, uh, just get the fuck away from my locker. I said, Brian, I'm not moving. I have to stay here. You know, this guy's getting treatment. I got to catch him on the way out. Fuck you. I'm like, what's your problem? Right? And then he gets up on me, right? He's maybe about a half inch taller than me. But he's like, you know, 220 pounds of just rock, right? And he's like, motherfucker, you fucking said fucking loud, half step, motherfucker, boom, 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 right? And I'm I'm going right back at him, right? So I remember what I remember what it had to be like 99 or 2000 because Charles Johnson, the receiver, comes over and he grabs me and he pushes me over to this table that's like full of like you know snacks and wings and stuff for the players, right in the middle of the locker room. And he's like, what are you doing, man? I was like, what do you mean? What am I doing? Fuck that guy. You know, and Brian Mitchell gets taken into the trainer's room. Now, 
I did not handle that well. You know, there was no reason for me to go back at him. It just didn't make it. All I had to say was, I'm not going to move from your locker. You tell me what's wrong. But he'd cussed me a couple of times. I was a young man. I was, you know, full of myself. And to this day, Brian Mitchell and I are fine. He understood what I said. We talked about it. It wasn't a big deal after that. I see him when I go to Washington all the time. So you fast forward maybe four or five years, and Allen Iverson is an MVP candidate. And on a TV show, I said, Allen Iverson's profile, you know, with the dreads and the 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 cornrows and the tattoos should not affect his candidacy from voters. But I can see voters from like Milwaukee or, you know, wherever saying, oh, well, you know, he doesn't represent the league and they're not going to vote for him. And I think that's wrong. Well, he got the exact opposite message. He heard that I thought people should vote against him because of his image. So after the uh, Milwaukee series ended in a game seven in Philadelphia, he was in the uh, press room and I was covering the Milwaukee side of it for the Daily News. But the um, all the press conferences were being piped into the press room. And at the end of his press conference, Allen Iverson gets up, walks away from the mic, walks back, leans over and says, hey, if Marcus Hayes is here, tell him he's an asshole. <laughs> so I hear this and I get up from my seat because I got to cover him in the L.A. series, right? I walk down the corridor and here comes Allen in the entourage. And you've seen the entourage. Oh, yeah. And this, this night it was probably 30 deep, right? And I see him and I say, Alan, why'd you call me an asshole? Fuck you, Marcus Hayes. Who the fuck you think you are talking about? You're talking that shit about me. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you talking about? So this goes this goes on for like maybe 15, 20 seconds. Out of nowhere, you've seen the the, the videos of the animals getting hit by like a cougar from the side when they're not John Smallwood, who weighs like 300 pounds comes from the side, knocks me up against the wall, pins me up against the wall and says, Marcus, it's not worth it. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, John, what are you talking It's not worth it. Just walk away. I said, you have no idea how much worse you're making this. You know. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, like the guys, the, the entourage guys, the, the, the bodyguards are like, stay off his jock or we'll come and get you and shit like this, right? So that ends, and I'm like, all right, I didn't handle that badly. John did, but I didn't handle that badly. <laughs> I went to uh, the Sixers brass, and I was like, what are they, what's he upset about? He says, well, you said that he shouldn't win the MVP because he's a thug. I said, I said exactly the opposite of that. That's exactly the opposite of what I said. Not in that, and Back then, the Sixers were owned, I believe, by, the, by Comcast, right? And I was like, you can go in the studios that you own and see the tape right now. But to answer your question, I handled the first one poorly we got over it i handled the second one better now alan and brian are two very different guys it took years for alan to sort of like understand that that wasn't the best way to express himself and he should have been better informed but you know one of the big things that i learned very early is and hockman hockman told me that you see hockman at stuff like what are you doing here stan he said i'm showing up i was like what are you talking about i said well i wrote this about larry boa and it's unfair for me to let you, as the beat writer, take the bullet for me for Bo being mad. So I'm showing up. If he has a beef with something that appeared in our paper, what he'll do, not just Boa, but other people, to what he might do is take it out on you and freeze you out or cuss you out or something like that. So I'm here to take the bullet. 
So one of the things I really try to do, and it's hard, you know, especially with little kids and Darren can speak to this. It's hard to like change your schedule down the week, but I miss some things every once in a while just so I can show up. Like I wrote this thing about Tortorella, you know, when he was uh, sort of showing his ass a couple, three weeks ago, I wrote this thing about Tortorella, which called him a 64 year old fifth grader. <laughs> and so the very next time I could get to the flyers, I got, in the, I got to the flyers and showed up in front of Tortorella in case he wanted to roast somebody. <laughs> well, that's integrity. You see that, you know, that Stan did define that. Uh, and it's funny how people hear what they want to hear, or they're, they're told what the, something was when it really wasn't. And I, I, I had a, a situation like that with Ruben Amaro. So we, we, after he traded Cliff Lee to Seattle, Cliff Lee, I got him on the air and Cliff Lee said, management lied to him. He said, the general manager lied to him. So, Cliff Lee says that Amaro comes, I'm on the field the next day, Amaro comes flying at me, saying, you could say I'm a bad general manager, don't call me a liar. I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, you, screw, call, you said I was a liar. I go, did you listen to, to the thing? He goes, no, no, but people told me. I go, well, guess what? Go back to the same people because it's, it's, it's uh, Cliff Lee's the guy who called you a liar, not me. Your own goddamn player called you a liar. And in the end, I right. said uh, something like, you owe me an apology, motherfucker. You know, so I probably handled that bad, too, by, by, by saying that on the field. To him. But, but it happens. Uh, all right. right so just, right. you know, I, you've covered so many guys. Like, and I love these stories. Like, the, the most pleasurable guys you've covered, the, the most miserable guys you've covered. I'm sure you have a list in your head. Uh, and where does Ben Simmons rank in that whole thing? And how do you feel about him and what he did to the city? Oh, what he did to the city, and it was crazy watching Carson Wentz do the same thing, sort of hold the franchise hostage and, and, and effectively try to ruin it. But um, so to answer the second part first, what he did to the city was probably the worst thing an athlete could do to a city. Fortunately, you know, James Harden existed and is serviceable at least. So you got something out of it. Um, but covering him was just kind of weird. You know, he was just a strange dude. I remember the first time I met him was the rookie, like the rookie uh, meet and greet in Madison Square uh, up, at, uh, up in New York before the draft. And he was incredibly professional, incredibly well-spoken. He was like 18 years old going on 45. You know, he's like the best dressed guy at the place, the best spoken guy at the place, maybe the best looking guy at the place. Right. And everybody knew he was going to be the number one pick. And then like he just descended into this like increasing whirlpool of weirdness every year. Like he got hurt and then he wanted to be a point guard and then he wanted to do this and he wanted to do that. Then he wouldn't shoot. And like, it was just kind of like, it was like covering a, 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 a mannequin. You know, there just wasn't a lot of there there. He, like, I really feel kind of bad for him because I just don't think he has a personality. I think he has an image, but not a personality. So, and I think the last time I, I talked to him was we were in Milwaukee like like three or four years ago. And he, if you remember, he had a bad back. And it was before, it must've been like late night, early 2000. That's what it was. Early, early 2020, um, it was February. And he went to the shoot around, seemed fine. I asked him about his back and he gave me this weird cryptic answer. Like, you know about my back or my back's my back or something, just something really weird on the way out to the bus. And he didn't play that night. He didn't play again until uh, like they resumed in the bubble or something like that. And then he hurt his knee or something like that. But to answer your question, he's just a weird dude. Like Roland was like that too. Scott Roland was a weird dude. Like he'd be he'd like 
he'd like be reading Ayn Rand in his locker between BP and the game and clearly like not really reading it, just sort of looking at it, you know? So just weird. Yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, he's an example of a guy who came in as a, a sweet guy and then turned into a miserable bastard. Scott Rowland. I've never seen a transformation like that, but uh, you're right about, about him. And, and Simmons, listen, I, 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 I'm just perplexed by, by that whole thing. I, I don't know what makes that guy tick. Uh, I, and I think you're right. I think he's, he's a mannequin and there's no there there. Uh, and and uh, he was, he was the biggest sports villain and I've covered sports for a lot of years in this town. He's the biggest sports villain ever. So, uh, uh, Marcus, um, this has been a pleasure, man. Darren, our producer, Darren, you know, Marcus is a great athlete, by the way, we used to battle on the, at the palestra on Wednesdays. Oh, can I tell my, can I tell my Miss Anelli story? Yeah, go ahead. This is the one where I kicked the ball into the stands. No, 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 no. no. This, is, this is way better. You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. Oh, okay. So the, uh, the first time I played in the PAL game at, at, at with the Phillies, right? The, they have like mm-hmm. the radio guys against the TV and print guys. And Miss Anelli's mm-hmm. playing shortstop. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I get caught in a rundown. And I get back to – he tags me out and I get back. And Mike also is a spectacular athlete, really good athlete. Like I got – what are you – are you 60 yeah. yet, Mike? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes, so, I am. So Mike's, Mike's, I'm in my 20s, and Mike is just as good as anybody on the field. So he tags me out, and I get back to the uh, – and I'm, I'm, I've been in town for like four months. I get back to the dugout, and the people in the dugout are like freezing me out. And I'm like, you're really, I'm sorry I got, I got caught in that rundown. I don't know what I was thinking. They're like, no, no, no. You had a chance to take out Miss Anelli. I was like, what are you talking about? You could have run him over. You're bigger than him. You could have trucked him, and you didn't do it. All my friends in the dugout, apparently. Uh, yeah. But also, here's the thing about Marcus. Marcus, uh, obviously, is, is married to a former uh, University of Pennsylvania basketball player. So a good stock there. And he's a coach up there in Bucks County. And he was my niece's daughter's coach up there. And he always had good things to say about my, my little niece, grandniece, I guess, Drew. Uh, are you still coaching her? What's her story? I haven't really kept up with her career. Oh, she's she's doing great. She plays for uh, Lenape Middle School. She's their point guard. And she's our two guard. She started last night. We won by 22 points. She's a really, really good athlete. Yeah, she's awesome. Did, did she Did she grow at all? I haven't seen her in a while. She's, she's still, you know, she's still in the backcourt. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah, she's still, t- she's still a tiny girl, but, oh, but yeah, she she loves the game and she she loved being yeah. coached by you. She said uh, you were hard on her, which is good. I like to hear that coaches, huh? Yeah, so so that's all good. But you know, she's what thirteen now, so you know, it's it's hard for it's hard for me to focus at games sometimes. So, but no, she's been a, a wonderful place. She's our fifth year with Drew. She's wonderful. Awesome. Marcus, it's a pleasure, man. Thanks for uh, doing this uh, for us. We, we appreciate it. Continue success uh, with the column. Uh, I assume you're going to be busy for the next year because this could be a Super Bowl and it could be a World Series. So uh, busy times. But uh, when, when things break like this, it's, I guess it's a little easier to function as a columnist. Oh, it's stealing money. Anytime you guys need <laughs> me, please let me know. All right, Marcus. Thanks, buddy. See ya. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, let's continue speaking of Christmas. In fact, that segment is this segment is called Speaking of Christmas. We're going to go over some songs, movies, and a Godfather analysis. And somewhere in the middle of this, I'm going to be doing my Bruce Springsteen imitation. Oh, it's so cold along the beach. You know, that thing. So hang on for that. And uh, so let's go with the top 10 Christmas songs, in my opinion, which I don't think can be disputed. We'll start with number one. Number one is the Christmas song, or as people might know it, 
chestnuts roasting on open fire. Nat King Cole, chestnuts roasting on an open. Oh, come on. You can't get any better than that. Number two, Last Christmas by Wham. Oh, a bust out song at number two by Wham. All right, number three, White Christmas, Bing Crosby. I mean, just classic. You can't do better than White Christmas by Bingaroo. Number four, let's go with All I Want for Christmas. The lady herself, Mariah Carey, at number four. Number five, This Christmas. Donnie Hathaway with This Christmas. All right, that's the top five. I don't think it can be disputed. Number six, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. Oh, they're all together singing Do They Know It's Christmas. It's a tearjerker. It's a heartbreaker. Number seven, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Yes, sir. Number eight, Christmas in Hollis, Queens by Run DMC. Yes, sir. And number nine, Blue Christmas by Elvis. And then finally. Can I I interrupt you for one moment before you go? uh Your list is disgusting. Disgusting. disgusting how do you not have darlene love on your list darlene love how in god's name do you leave darlene love off ow what does darlene love do christmas baby please come home all alone on christmas christmas baby please come home is the number one christmas song in the world oh stop darlene love you know i just gave you 10 no miss songs stop it you gave me wham at number two you make uh, me sick what, you, last christmas I gave you my heart. Come on, George Michael. Oh, it's the best song, underrated Christmas song ever. I'll tell you this. The Jimmy Eat World rendition is actually better. They're covered. Oh, stop, Jimmy Eat World. So Christmas song, that can call. Last Christmas, Wham. White Christmas by Bing. All I Want for Christmas, Mariah. This Christmas, Donnie Hathaway. Uh, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, Christmas at Hollis, Queens. My run DFC planet. Blue Christmas, Elvis. And finally, Santa Claus is coming to town. All right. Now, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, they've been waiting for it. I used to do this every year. In fact, I did it multiple times leading up to Christmas. It was played every day. So let me get uh, since we don't have the capacity to play it through the radio. I'm going to play it through uh, my uh, my phone here. And hopefully uh, it, it, it gets a, a clearing. And, and then I will do the narration along with Bruce as he uh, the, uh, talks into the intro of the song. Are, are we ready, Darren? Yeah, yeah got it. All right, are we ready? Okay, here, here we go. Here we go. Oh, there it is. So cold. Oh, oh, it's all cold around the beach. The wind whipping down the boardwalk. Hey, band! Hey, band! Hey, band. hey you, you guys know what time it is? Huh? What? Oh, Christmas time! And you, you guys all, you guys all been good, practicing real hard. Yeah, you said, Clarence, you've been, you've been rehearsing real hard now. So Santa bring you new saxophone, right? Anybody been good out there or what? Oh, that's not many, not many. You guys in trouble out there? All right, there we go. There it is. Hey, Clarence. Clarence, you 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 been rehearsing real hard, so Santa bring you new saxophone. <laughs> See, you don't even like Bruce, and yet you all love right, that. There, That's always there. Music. It is. I like I like Man. Bruce. 
I'm a big, I'm an early Bruce guy. By the way, big breaking news, big breaking news. I know this is uh, not a live show, but I might as well tell you, Jalen Hurts out Saturday. It will be Minshew. Uh, uh Uh-huh. All right. That's what we thought it it would be. Oh, it's all cold along the beach. Oh, the wind's whipping down the boardwalk. Hey, man. What? Huh? What? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Have you ever seen one of those Springsteen Asbury Park Christmas shows that he would do with, like, uh, Gary U.S. Bonds and Darlene Love? Have you ever been to one of them? No, no, no. no, They were terrific. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's classic. All right, so uh, now let's go with our movies. Here are my top five Christmas movies, and this will lead us into a discussion of The Godfather, uh, which I've been holding back, but since it's appropriate, because The Godfather has a Christmas little flavor to it. So my top movies, uh, in no particular order, uh, let me give you a Christmas story, Elf, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Home Alone, It's a Wonderful Life, and Honorable Mention. The Nightmare Before Christmas by Tim Burton. There are some other movies that touch on Christmas. They have Christmas included. One is The Godfather. You know, the Kay and Michael are shopping for presents down there in, the, in front of uh, the Radio City Music Hall, all that. It's Christmas time. And it's Christmas time is when they shoot the Don and the whole bit. Uh, and uh, Tom comes out of uh, Best in Company with a sled. Uh, but I, I, when I think of The Godfather, I think of things that uh, didn't make sense to me, even though it's the greatest movie ever. So let's just go over a couple things here. Uh, These are 10 views of The Godfather. I go, huh? All right. So number one, I have never seen a hospital empty. Michael goes in to visit his father. There's one patient in the whole freaking hospital. One patient. Enzo walks in. You hear echoes through the thing. One patient's in the hospital. What kind of hospital is this? Hospitals are usually bustling, right? One patient. It's the Don. Nobody's in any other room. All right. Number two. What happened to the toll taker when Sonny gets shot up? The toll taker is obviously part of the whole thing. He ducks down. Here come the machine gun. They rattle him with bullets. What happened to the guy? I didn't see him walk away. They, they, I don't know. They, 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 did they kill him? I mean, who knows? But the guy was part of the scam because he ducked down. So I don't know what happened to the guy. He's a phantom. All right, number three. Why, do, um, why would you ruin a perfectly good windshield when you kill Carlo? Couldn't you kill Carlo in a house? Couldn't you strangle him the same way? You put him in a car, he bangs out the window. You got to pay for that windshield. You know, I don't understand it. Kill him there. You go through the whole charade. You give him the plane tickets. You give him the suitcase. You put it in a thing. You wait until he gets in the car. He kicks out the window. Perfectly good windshield. All right. Number four, throwing sandwiches at the wedding. Where are the sandwiches coming from? What are they going to a deli? They throw sandwiches to Polly at the wedding. Hey, Polly, I got two gabagools. Where are the sandwiches? Where are they serving sandwiches at the wedding? All right, stay with the wedding. Clemenza, he's in the fray. He's going, Polly, more wine. Hey, bring him a pitcher. He's drinking sangria. What is sangria doing at that Italian wedding? It's got fruit in the pitcher. It's a sangria blend that Polly's drinking, not wine. All right, number six. Kay and Michael are sitting at the table. He says to her, how do you like your lasagna? Where do you get lasagna at a wedding? Have you ever been to a wedding and had a pan of lasagna out there that you cut it yourself? I thought that was an Italian stereotype. Well, it's Italian. They must have. They must serve lasagna. Come on, Mar- uh, 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 Francis Ford. What's the, what's the story with the lasagna? It doesn't make sense. There's no lasagna at a wedding. All right, number seven, Lucy Mancini. That's who Sonny uh, uh, clips. Sonny's a stud. He couldn't do better than Lucy Mancini. What is that? 
That's Hag Central at Lucy Mancini. I'm embarrassed for Sonny taking her upstairs. All right, number eight, uh, Johnny Fontaine sends the worst flower arrangement in the history of flower arrangements after they talked to Salazzo. Bring in this flower arrangement. It's got sticks sticking out. with all. It's not even together, the thing. It's wobbling all over the place. What's that? Uh, Johnny Fontaine, thank you for being, starting in that new movie. New movie. Douglas, get it out. Get it out of the way. That's terrible. Well, Johnny Fontaine can't do any better than that flower arrangement. All right, no, number nine. Uh, one small knife. In the uh, in, uh, top of the hand of Luca Brazzi bonds him to the bar. The guy's 350 pounds strong as seven oxen, right? He the one the one little pen knife that, that sticks in his hand bonds him to the bar to the point where they start. He's gonna rip that right out. Come on. And finally, number 10. This irritates me more than anything. Uh the Irish captain, McCluskey. They go into the restaurant. Lose Italian rest. Lose Italian restaurant. Go and sit down. He says, "How's the Italian food in this place? How's the Italian food? No, what, what, what? no, the, the the American food is better. Order that. Oh, what the? How's the Italian food? It's it's an Italian restaurant. It's in the Bronx. What do you expect it is? All right, they're my ten. What do you think? Uh, yeah, the, I've always wondered about the toll taker too. Is he a hit man? That's the one that always stuck with me whenever I watch the movie. You don't laugh enough, man. That was funny shit. And you're not. You're sitting back there. You're not laughing at any of them. <laughs> you're not laughing. Time. I don't hear you laughing. Yeah, you, for effect, you got to laugh on the podcast. <laughs> My mic's on you. You're a god. I like to have some background laughter. <laughs> All right. I'll give, I'll give All right. The mic All right. Time for three questions from Mike. What do you got today? Oh, three questions in uh, Christmas time. It's Christmas weekend. Tomorrow is the famous Christmas Eve, Eve Festivus, as some say, then Christmas Eve, then Christmas Day. Give me a Mikey, give me, give me a Mikey Miss Christmas tradition. What do you do every year at Christmas tomorrow? Ah, interesting. Well, I used to do the seven fishes and I would not eat even one of the fishes. (laughs) My my, my family used to have the seven fishes dinner. It was always the tradition on on Christmas Eve. Uh, so, uh, but my sister would make the fishes in a bouillon base. So it was, a, it was more palatable instead of having the, the traditional salted cod and the smelts and all that stuff. She would have the lobster and the scallops and the bouillon base and the king crab legs and the whole bit. So that was the tradition, the seven fishes, but not really the traditional seven fishes. All right, there you go. All right. Second question, Mike, are you uh, more Christmas Eve or Christmas day guy? Uh, I'm a, uh, uh... I'm a Christmas Eve guy more because I, I Christmas Day I like to just sit around and relax, you know, hang out with my daughter on Christmas Day and do the presents. But I'm 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 more of a Christmas Eve present guy. Like I like to do the Christmas Eve present. You do presents on Christmas Eve, or do you do like the one gift? Yeah, I like, as it gets closer to midnight. Do you do like the one gift, or you will you open everything on Christmas Eve? Depends on who I'm with. Okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I All right. I mean, <laughs> All right, here we go. Third question. I want you to think back throughout your entire life, all twenty-eight years of it. What is the best Christmas present Mikey Miss ever got? Well, I have to go way back in time because you know my parents. I it's funny because I uh, when I used to ask for stuff. It was always a taffy, like whether I would get it or not. Because my parents uh, were really uh, wealthy, but I, I remember I asked for uh, uh, adult uh, two albums one year. Uh, that was the most my prized possession when you actually had vinyl. And I asked for uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, 
uh, and uh, Santana Abraxas. And I remember getting both of them. I thought I would only get one. I got both of them that year. See, Mikey Miss is a simplistic guy. The, the, you know, what, what sticks out in Mikey Miss's memory is that I was only going to get one album, and I got both of them. That Earth, Wind & Fire album was the bomb. It, had, it, it was the white album where they were all across, and then you had to open the album cover, and it continued the whole band. And Santana Braxis, when Santana had the Black Magic Woman, Oye Como Ba. <laughs> oh yeah yes so that's the one that stands out mostly because i didn't expect to get it both there's, there's not many christmas gifts you can get better than music in yeah. any form i think it's a great gift uh given music. yeah first of all i didn't think they'd remember it yeah you know you know you tell your parents you want to say you know, they, they like to have seven thumbs when they're trying to pick out the albums how old are you at that time around i was i don't know maybe in my teen years that's that's young to be in the well, yeah, I mean, yeah. The music is yeah but that's good i like you yeah, yeah yeah it stands out yeah good so. stuff. that's three questions for mikey miss christmas all right that, that sounds good all right listen before we close it down i just gotta do this one more time oh it's so cold along the beach the wind's whipping down the boardwalk hey band yeah babe you guys know what time it is yeah christmas time what time Huh? Christmas time. What? What? Christmas time. Oh, oh, Christmas time. Uh, you guys, you guys all been good and practicing real hard because he, he doubles it up there. You guys, you guys all, you guys all been good and practicing real hard. Yeah. Clarence, Clarence, you, you, you've been rehearsing real hard now. So Santa bring your new saxophone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody been good out there or what? Oh, there's not many. That's not many. You guys are in trouble out here. <laughs> All right, let's close it down. Here we go. Um, the winery. I'm announcing a new Mike Miss special. Go to the website, nataliavineyards.com, N-A-T-A-L-I. The Mike Missinelli special is, if you buy six bottles, you get 30% off the total price. For, for, for the holidays. The Mike Missinelli special. Call the winery. All right? Call them. Tell them you want the Mike Missinelli special. You can order it right there. I'm not sure if we have the online code yet, but just call them or visit the winery. It's in Cape May Courthouse. Six bottles for 30% off, and we're making some really good wines. I would not steer you wrong. All right, my book. Uh, I've had really good success. I just uh, wrote a check out to the Mainline Animal Shelter because I'm donating 20% of the proceeds of the book, uh, The Adventures of Shima to Shiba, to shelters, local shelters. Uh, and so uh, get the book. You can get it on my website, mikemiss.com, uh, or you can get it on Amazon or uh, uh, wherever you get your books, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, it's called The Adventures of Shima to Shiba. And it's, uh, it's a good, good book for kids just learning to read or for parents to read it to them. Uh, Adventures of My Dog. She actually narrates the, do- the the book, but it's my head that's going through her head. Uh, Mike Miss 25 on Twitter is how you get to me. Check out the Mike Miss 25. I always have uh, provocative thoughts on there that you, you'll either agree with or not. And that's what it's all about. And don't forget about the Eagles Post Game Show. Jacob Media's Eagles Post Game Show. We do it live. And uh, we're going to be doing it on Saturday following the, the, the uh, Eagles game uh, after the 425 game. Probably will be on the air at about 7 o'clock. And you can always email me. I love to get the emails and suggestions for what we can do on this podcast. Love to make you a part of the podcast. My email address, Mike, M-I-K-E, at MikeMiss.com. 
And that's about it. So uh, I want to wish everybody a happy holiday. Darren, happy holiday to you and yours. Merry Christmas, Mike. And everybody out in the Delaware Valley, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and making it very successful. We're having a great time doing it. Uh, this is the time that you spend with your family. So enjoy your family. You might not like a lot of people in your family, but enjoy them anyway because they're your family. And then after Christmas, you can go about your business. All right? <laughs> have, have, have a great Christmas. Have a great holiday season. This is Mike Miss. Uh, I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bissinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.